Well, thank you for the privilege of being here. Pastor Brown was kind to extend the invitation to Kristen and me to come and be with you uh, this weekend. And uh, I know for Kristen, this is a really special, uh, almost a little reunion, uh, historical reminiscent kind of trip. Uh, she grew up in Allen Park. And uh, as your pastor mentioned, uh, knew several of you who are here, part of this congregation. We were able to get in early enough yesterday to spend some time driving through some of our old neighborhood and uh, the stomping grounds. And it's been really sweet uh, for her and for me, because when I first began to date her and pursue her, uh, the trips from South Carolina to Michigan were frequent. And uh, so I've, I've burned up a lot of I-75 time through the years. Uh, but after we were married, I took her south, held her hostage ever since. And then her parents retired from the Detroit area and moved down. And she had other family members who lived in this area as well. And now everybody lives in the south. And so the opportunities to be back north have been very few through the years. And uh, God was good to give us an opportunity not just to share our vision for ministry in Salt Lake, but even, I think, for Kristen's sake to allow her to come back and have a few days here. So thank you for the invitation, and um, it's been good to get to know some of you. It's been good to see some old friends as well, say hello again, and uh, we would ask that you pray for us. We are six weeks away from moving to Utah, and even when that video was made, it seemed it seemed really far into the future, although we were persuaded God had called us to do it, and now as we watch that, and Kristen leaned over and said, and I really don't want to see this video anymore. As you can imagine, we've watched it a number of times. Um, but but we're closer and closer. And so six weeks from tomorrow, Lord willing, we will take our two youngest children uh, and begin that drive west. Our two older children are remaining in Greenville. Our oldest son, Luke, uh, just graduated from college and has a good job there in Greenville that we believe God has given him. He was very encouraging over this last year even to, to pray about whether God should have him move with us. But we all believe that God is keeping him in Greenville. Then our daughter, Kate, who is 19, she's a freshman, just finishing her first year of college and uh, planning to stay at least through her sophomore year. And we've just kind of said, we'll take it year by year. But she is one of the three children pictured uh, in the video and um, was was very, very encouraged through that trip that we made last summer, the two weeks we spent there together, and uh, is open to what God might have her to do. And then our, our daughter, Haley, is an 11th grader. And our son, Seth, is a ninth grader, and they're the ones, in a sense, who have no choice but to go. Uh, although Haley had said last year, when she realized the timing of this was going to be right between 11th and 12th grade, and Grandpa and Grandma Johnson, my in-laws, are our next-door neighbors, and she said, would you be willing to let me stay, finish my senior year at Eastside? I could live with Grandpa and Grandma and then move out. And Kristen said no uh, immediately. And, but we re, kind of negotiated that a little bit. And then I said, you know, we're asking them to pray about going and being open to God's will. We should at least model that and, and show we're also open to something different from what we planned. But as we prayed, what was really neat is to watch God move in Haley's heart. Uh, she's still a little anxious about the move, uh, but fully committed, you know, because this is what God has for us. And we talked on the phone very briefly last night and, and, um, she had spent part of the afternoon and evening with uh, other family and some cousins. And it's hard, you know, as you see these days come to a, a close and know that we're moving. But um, she's trusting the Lord and we're grateful for that. And then our son, Seth, who's 15, ninth grader, he's just kind of along for the, the ride of life, whatever that means. And he's uh, typical of some of those youngest, you know, the, the youngest, uh, they, they are often the highly entertaining ones. 
and uh, sometimes very chill and laid back, and that's kind of where he is. So he's like, I'm good, Utah, South Carolina, whatever. Uh, so that's a, that's a little brief glimpse into our, our family. Uh, but please pray for us. It, it really does mean a lot, as Kristen said in the testimony. We covet those prayers. We value them and desire them. And uh, if the prayer card, there's a little information sheet over there that gives kind of a one-page summary of the ministry. If those will be helpful tools for you to remember, please take them with you. And uh, uh, we just ask you to, to partner with us in, in prayer. And as your pastor said, there's a sign-up list over there too if you would like to be added to an email update list. And right now it's about once a month. And uh, I promise I will not spam you. And I, I do not sell the names Uh, I don't have enough names on my list to make it worth anybody giving me money for that. Uh, But that's just a little bit about our ministry. If you have not opened your Bibles uh, to Acts 28, would you please do that with me at this time? I'd like to begin reading in verse 17. And I know that this is a little bit of an unusual way to to jump into a passage. And I, I, I do this for a couple of reasons. Um, so bear with me because some of you say, wow, I'm, I'm a little disoriented and, and what has preceded this? And we will we'll take time to put it in its larger context in just a moment. But I do this in part because I want to get you, get, give you a feel of kind of the abruptness of, of how the story flows at this point and then even comes to an end. Acts 28, I'd like to begin reading in verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And Dr. Luke is is speaking of Paul. The Apostle Paul calls together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of their fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive for this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear and their eyes. They have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. 
He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Would you join me in praying for the Lord's help as we work through this passage? Father, as we open your word this morning, it is with great anticipation and expectation that you will fulfill your promises, particularly the promises you have made that the Holy Spirit would come as instructor and teacher, that he would be the one who would guide his people into an understanding of the truth. And we ask that you would open our eyes to see what you have for us today and open our ears that we may hear your voice and yours alone. And I pray for help that I may preach the truth as you intended it to be preached, that it would not be a reflection of my opinions, that it would not be biased uh, by my own thoughts. But, oh, Lord God, that I would simply be a servant, a table waiter, as it were, and that the the beautiful life giving soul-satisfying truth of your inspired, authoritative word would feed the hearts of your people and would be used by the Spirit to draw those who are not in personal relationship with Jesus Christ, draw them to your heart. We ask that you would build the faith of your people in this place, that you would encourage and exhort, that you would comfort And bring peace. There are hundreds of things that need to be done in our souls this day. And oh great God. You are able and willing. And so we ask Heavenly Father. That your blessing would rest in this place. For the testimony and sake of Jesus Christ. Our shepherd king. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Don't you love a good story? If I were to ask you, what's your favorite story, whether it be something you've read or maybe even a movie that you've seen at some point, uh, maybe something that you even personally have written or maybe that your child wrote at a particular point. And though it may not be cataloged among the great classics of world literature, there's something about that particular story that to you is compelling. And some of the things that are compelling to us when we read stories are often that there are not only really strong plot lines, but part of that is there are surprises along the way. And maybe there's a little twist at the ending and and you say, oh, I never saw that coming. As a matter of fact, some of you have been surprised often enough where you actually read chapter one and then you go to the end and read the very end. And then you decide if you're going to read what comes in between. I don't get that. To me, that's cheating. You know, the the author wrote the story in sequence, so whatever happens in the last chapter, you're not supposed to know until then. How many of you want to confess that, yeah, I I often read to the end because I want to know where this thing is going? Are you willing to do that? A number of ladies, oh, a couple of men. It's a little unusual, guys. I mean, this is no reflection on you, but as I've heard this question asked before, it seems like ladies are more inclined to do that, but a couple of you men are in that category as well. You know, there's no Bible verse that instructs us whether that is sin or not. I just, you know, preach my own conscience uh, on that particular point. So I leave you to the spirit of God as to whether you should do that or not. But we all love a good story, I think. And I've got to tell you that when I come to the end of Acts, I'm actually a little surprised that it almost falls flat. Because it just leaves us hanging. And and I, I think to myself, every time I come to this 
particular portion. And, you know, in my Bible, it's laid out like this. There's all this blank space underneath the last couple of verses of Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. And I read that. I'm thinking, that's awesome. I mean, that how exciting that Paul is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. And that's it. I mean, we've been reading for several chapters of of his imprisonment and this impending trial. And he's stood before Felix and Agrippa. And he's not only shared the gospel with these powerful people, but he's also been pleading his case. And so then he makes the appeal to Caesar. And now he he has made the trip under Roman guard uh, and he's all the way to Rome. And we don't even know what happens to Paul. And yet, because we understand that the. Scriptures are the inspired word of God, the inerrant. That means they're without error. That this word is authoritative in our lives. God didn't miss something here. He didn't forget to send the last chapter or two to the publisher, as it were. The Holy Spirit brings this account, the Acts of the Apostles, as we have titled it. He brings it to a perfect point. But I submit to you, it's not actually the ending of the story. It's almost as if we are to read to this point and say there has to be more. What is more? And, you know, you can read a little bit of church history and find out what happened to Paul and and piecing together some of the evidence and find out that apparently he for at least a couple more years, he he was able to minister the gospel and may have even been released and then brought back to Rome in chains and ultimately martyred. But. History is not really what God wants us to concern our hearts with this morning. Now, I submit there's something else that God wants each of us to experience as we read through and and study the book of Acts and come to this particular point. But let's go back a few a few verses here. We began reading in, in verse 17. And just to make sure that you're fully up to speed, this is kind of a um, a climactic moment when Paul arrives at Rome, because as I said, there's been a sequence of events where he was first put in chains in Jerusalem and the Jews were really angry with him because he was preaching the gospel. And so they made up these accusations against him. And then the Roman ruler in in Jerusalem got involved in this and he wasn't about riots and turmoil. Everybody's fearful of what Caesar and Rome would say if they, they find out that some of these outlying provinces and cities that are under the control are, are, are rioting. And so through Felix and Agrippa, ultimately, Paul has been brought in chains to Rome to withstand trial. What's really neat, if we had time to go back even to the beginning parts of the chapter and see how God had protected and kept Paul, there's shipwreck in, in the chapter before this. And then verse 11 tells us some really neat touches of how God prepared other believers to minister to Paul in this time of uncertainty where he's a prisoner. Brothers come out from Rome and and again, we don't have time to fully explore this, but they're actually traveling a number of miles to meet him even before he arrives in the city. And it's obvious that they became a great encouragement to his heart. But But now look at verse 17 with me again. Because Paul is taking this very difficult time, even a time of uncertainty, to continue to minister the gospel. And it's not Paul who really is the central character, because as we're going to see in a few moments when we go all the way back to Acts 1, it's really the work that Jesus Christ is doing through people like Paul. 
And so even though it's not stated in this way, what I would want you to be aware of is that it is actually Jesus Christ who is opening this opportunity for ministry to the local leaders of the Jews. That's who Paul encounters in verse 17. He called together the local leaders of the Jews. This is exactly what he's done from, from day one when he was converted. And Paul rehearses how he came to be at Rome. And he says things like this. I was arrested in Jerusalem, handed over to the Romans. I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews were the ones who had objected. I did not intend to bring a charge against my own people. He says, I, I, I have no quarrel with the Jews back in Jerusalem, and I would have none with you. So he's trying to lay some groundwork to, to demonstrate he is not an opponent. But now look at verse 20. He says very simply, it is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. Now, what is this hope of Israel? Well, we haven't been able to read all the way through the book of Acts, but just go back to chapter 23 with me for a minute. I want you to, to note a couple of references where that idea of the hope, a message of hope, um, is brought to the forefront in discussions or in messages. Look at verse 6 with me, please. Acts 23, 6. When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, here he is before a council in Jerusalem, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with, it, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. The hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now go to chapter 26 and look at verse 6. Chapter 26. Actually, we're going to read verses 6, 7, and 8. Again, he's presenting his defense before Agrippa, this time a powerful Roman ruler. It is because of my hope... In what God has promised our ancestors. So he, he is referring specifically as a Jewish man to his Jewish ancestors. And in particular, it would be the Old Testament that he has in view. Prophecies of God given to his people that give them a particular hope. Now, pay attention as we read through these three verses as to how he explains a little more what this hope is. So he says, I'm on trial today for this. Now, verse seven, this is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? And there again is this idea of resurrection. Now, bring it right into today. A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated resurrection, didn't we? I mean, it's the greatest day on the Christian calendar, in my estimation. It's better than Christmas. I mean, we rejoice that God's only begotten son entered the world miraculously, virgin born. There's so much for us to celebrate at Christmas. And it's appropriate that we exchange gifts and, and we host all kinds of parties and gatherings and celebration. It is a little intriguing to me that we don't have greater celebrations at Easter, but at least we come together on that resurrection Sunday and we celebrate that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That, that's a stumbling block for many people. It's like, really? Really? And, and there are people who struggle with that, and, and maybe some of you do. How, how, does, how does anybody rise from the dead? Yeah, that's a great question. 
the only answer that God actually gives us is by his divine power. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus himself, as the second person of the Trinity, raised himself from the grave. It took divine power to do it. That's a message that the disciples were happy to preach and proclaim because they were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. It's one thing for an individual to make a claim that something happened that nobody saw happen. It's a whole different story when you have hundreds of eyewitnesses. And the testimony, again, in the scriptures is not merely that the 11 disciples, because remember, Judas had committed suicide. It's not only that the 11 saw him, but hundreds and hundreds. There were actually several hundred people gathered on one occasion who saw Jesus together. And at the time the New Testament is written, many of them were still alive. So you have eyewitnesses. So Paul is bearing witness to this resurrection and he ties that resurrection to his hope and the hope of Israel as they had studied the Old Testament. Everything is built on the resurrection. We sang some great texts this morning that go right back to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Now look at verse 21. Uh, in, In chapter 28, sorry, if you're still in 26, you might have thought I meant. Chapter 26. Go back to chapter 28. So Paul is explaining this hope. It says, this is why I'm in chains. And they say to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you. None of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to the sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And we're kind of at the heart of why... Our faith is offensive to many because we're saying we're calling people to believe that God became man, Jesus Christ, lived a life of perfect obedience, died a criminal's death on the cross, though he was innocent. And and we even say to, to people as we present the gospel, don't we? He died for you because you deserve that kind of death. And that is also hard for some people to admit. I'm not really that bad, but... The gospel actually tells us we are that bad. And we're in need of someone who will die in our stead. And Jesus did that. He he died a substitutionary death on the cross, went into the grave, and then three days later, rose. Living. It is quite a remarkable story, isn't it? Well, no wonder there were many people who were speaking against it. It seems unreasonable in many ways. It seems crazy that, that we would be called to put our faith In this Jesus that we would be called to repent of our sins and turn away from a former lifestyle and conform ourselves to his authoritative law of love. But these people want to hear more of Paul's views. Now look at verse 23, because here Christ gives a very specific opportunity for Paul to speak. And verse 23 says to even larger numbers. And then it just uses... A couple of simple terms that are very helpful for us. First of all, he witnessed to them. From morning till evening, verse 23 says, he expounded to them or witnessing to them, testifying to the kingdom of God. He's explaining about the kingdom of God. Now, what what is the kingdom of God? 
Well, in a very narrow sense, if we're speaking of future things to come, we could refer to the, the kingdom of Christ in the eschatological sense. That's, that's a big, you know, 50 cent word. It just means future, future things. And we hope for this thousand year reign of Jesus Christ when he sets up his kingdom on the earth and, and a new heaven, new earth will then be made and he will reign forever. It's not going to be limited to a thousand years, but is that the kingdom that Paul is talking about? No, I, I think it's actually broader than that. And we know that in part because of where Luke begins his story back in chapter one. Would you turn there with me for just a moment? And, and I want you to see this. In Acts 1, we read, in the first book, O Theophilus, and this is Luke, the doctor, writing to his friend Theophilus, and the first book would have been the Gospel of Luke. So he's saying, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Then look at verse 6. Oh, I'm sorry, no, verse verse 3, then we'll go to verse 6. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, and this is the disciple speaking to Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So do you see how Jesus adjusts their view at this point? They, and rightfully so, I mean, who... Who, what follower of Jesus is not excited about the restoration of the kingdom? But basically Jesus is saying, that's not for our discussion right now. What I want you to focus on is the fact that I'm positioning you, calling you. I'm going to empower you to be my witnesses starting right here in your local community in Jerusalem, spreading out through Samaria. And you are actually going to bear witness to me, to my life, to my death, to my resurrection in the uttermost parts of the earth. You're going to be witnesses of the the gospel of the kingdom. So now go back to chapter 28. Because Paul is explaining about the kingdom. Paul who wasn't even present in Acts 1 when the Lord commissioned that first group of disciples. There he is witnessing to them that it, that is he's bearing testimony, he's explaining about the kingdom of God. And then the third term that you see there at the end uh, of Acts 28 is that he is trying to persuade them. And I think, oh, wouldn't you love to hear Paul try to persuade uh, a group of listeners? That would be quite an impressive Old Testament theology class. The former Pharisee, the one who had memorized vast portions, if not most of, uh, of, of the Old Testament. Opening God's word, saying to them, when Isaiah said, this is what he meant. When Jeremiah wrote, this is what was in view. When Moses recorded the law, here is what he was really presenting. But look at the response of the hearers. Verse 24. Some were convinced. Others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave. Can I pause for just a moment to encourage some of you who feel like 
a failure when you present the gospel. Some of you have let that fear press you to a point where you're just kind of like, I'm just going to leave that to other people. I love Jesus, but it seems like every time I open my mouth, I just make a mess of it. And, and I'm embarrassed and nobody ever seems to respond in faith to my presentations of the gospel. I'm just going to leave that to the people who are gifted in evangelism. I suspect many of you feel that way, don't you? I feel that way. I feel that way frequently. And yet here's an example of an apostle. I mean, Paul is among those who can actually perform miracles. I mean, Paul is the one who has like the full giftedness from the spirit of God. And yet his presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and even his desire and efforts to persuade results in a mixed response. Some believed, some did not. You know, it's never up to you or to me to do the full persuading. We're called to just bear witness. And the Holy Spirit is ultimately the one who, who is, is going to produce the results, isn't he? Just a little aside for your encouragement that not even Paul batted a thousand when it came to evangelism. So who are we to think that we should or that we, we will? That's a little aside. Now, look at what Paul does because it, it, he actually quotes Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. And some of you probably are looking at a, a, a study Bible where that reference is noted in the margin. But Paul's response to them is this statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah, the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive for this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. So dull hearts, barely hearing their eyes, they have closed. And then he says, if they would turn, I would heal them. And, and we are reminded again of, of the mercy of God. But at this point, Paul actually speaks a, a, a word of condemnation to those who are rejecting him. This is not to the ones who are convinced. It's the ones who say we don't believe. But then a little surprising turn at, at this particular point. God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. And look at the end of verse 28. They will listen. So we move from a, a passage of scripture that says they will not understand they will not see to a also I, I think an equally powerful promise and though it's not a direct quotation there is a passage of scripture in Isaiah 52 verse 15 it, it's tied into even the Romans 15 passage that that I quoted in the video presentation earlier where God's promise is that some will hear and some will see and Paul runs to that they will listen I want you to think about that statement this morning. They will listen. Do you know this assembly is part of the proof that God's word is true? Say, so where do you get that? Well, think about this. First of all, Paul's quoting Isaiah, who wrote in the late 8th century B.C., Probably 730, 725, 720, somewhere in that range. Isaiah was first speaking these words, both promising that some would not hear and, and see, and also promising in passages like Isaiah 52, 15, that some would see and understand. And at that time, there was no state of Michigan. 
There was no community known as Benton. I don't know how far back the Native American history runs in this particular area. There were probably some people here, but unknown to these prophets. Fast forward almost 800 years because Paul is speaking this word somewhere around 60 A.D. Going back 800 years, believing the promise that God had given through Isaiah that some will listen Isaiah is speaking it to a group of people who are the demonstration. Some have been convinced and they have chosen to believe at this point. Others are rejecting it. But now he's he's speaking of of things that are about to take place in his own generation with with no knowledge of what God would do in the uttermost part of the earth, because that's really what Benton, Michigan is, just like Greer, South Carolina. Oh, Trenton. Sorry. Are we on Benton Benson Road? Okay, so I'm like, yeah. Thanks for the word of exhortation. Yeah, yeah. But you know, part of his, part of God's plan that neither Isaiah could have been aware of or Paul would have been aware of is that he would, in fact, raise up a man and a family and a group of individuals who would plant Community Bible Church. And that in time, the ministry of the Word in this location would bear fruit. Impartial fulfillment of this promise that the salvation of God is being sent to the Gentiles. And they will listen. Isn't it great to think that we're included in the they? I mourn that some did not believe on that day. I rejoice that God's word is still being fulfilled. It was given to Isaiah first. Paul takes hold of it and operates in the blessing and authority and power of that same text, but God's word spans thousands of years and the fulfillment spans thousands of years. What an astonishing thing that several hundred people would gather right here on this piece of property, unknown to those who've gone before us in previous generations and sing in testimony to our own salvation and also sing in the hope that there will be more tribes and tongues who gather at the throne. This is why I say we come to the end of Acts 28 and we're a little surprised that it just stops. And we don't know about Paul's trial. We don't know how the rest of his life runs. But casting it into its bigger picture, we realize there's a bigger story unfolding than Paul. Now, you look at verses 30 and 31, there's some great things that are taking place here. He lived in that particular location two whole years at his own expense. He welcomed all who came to him, the text says. And, you know, it's commonly believed that during this two-year period, Paul wrote letters like Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon and Philippians. And those of you who've known 
uh, Jesus Christ for any length of time probably value those books and you love the truth and the encouragement that you receive from those. So we know it was an exceedingly fruitful time of ministry for Paul. But then look at as we continue reading, it's a profitable ministry for those who visit because he welcomed all who came to see him. And, and there's a kind of Christian hospitality that's included here, but there's more than, than just a hospitality. Look at verse 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And if Philippians was written during this time, it is interesting to think about just two verses from Philippians. Philippians 1 verse 13, Paul testifies, It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So here's a guy who under house arrest is using that opportunity to just preach Christ, proclaim him, share him. And so the whole guard knows the gospel. How many of them responded in faith? We we aren't certain about that. Then Philippians 4 verse 22 He writes, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Well, that's clear evidence that the gospel has, in fact, made its way all the way to Rome. And that's what Jesus said his witnesses would do in Acts 1, isn't it? We're actually coming full circle. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Rome wasn't the end of the earth per se, but that is way beyond Jerusalem and Samaria. It really is a fitting place for this story to move. And I would submit to you that the story has not come to an end, in part because what Jesus purposed to do, what Acts 1 tells us he had had begun, Gospel of Luke, and was continuing to do, he's actually continuing in our own day. In many ways, we could say that the 28 chapters that are recorded in Acts certainly are the inspired, authoritative, inerrant word of God, but the story that is being told there is still being written. And there are hundreds of chapters beyond Acts 28 in one sense that God is writing. And beloved, here's what I would want you to be impressed with today. You are part of that story as God's fulfillment. You are also key characters, witnesses of God, servants of God, taking the gospel into your own community to others who have yet to be reached. Some who will hear this incredible story of a crucified and resurrected Christ and be convinced and believe. And others who will say, that's crazy talk. And they will walk away. But in it all, God is the author of the story. And Jesus Christ is the central figure. And the gospel purpose is the main plot line. What a privilege to have a part in this. And so we read those last couple of descriptions that here is Paul ministering with all boldness, without hindrance. And I've got to tell you, when I read that, I think to myself, aren't his chains a hindrance? He's ambitious to go to places that have not heard the gospel yet, but he's a prisoner in Rome. How can this record include the fact that he is proclaiming Christ with all boldness and without hindrance? You just think through his life of all the difficulty he experienced. Multiple stonings, often in danger, as he describes in his letter to the Corinthians, shipwreck at sea, legal difficulties, personal disasters. But none of these things, beloved, in the big picture are actually hindrances. Often they become the very platforms on which God positions his witnesses to preach and proclaim Jesus Christ. 
Your cancer is not a hindrance to your gospel work in the world. It may be the very avenue by which God desires you to travel on this day so that you are strategically positioned to preach the resurrected Christ to a fellow cancer patient who has no hope of life after the coming death. Your loss of a job may not, in fact, be the great catastrophe you imagine it to be on this day. A hindrance to your service. It creates anxiety in your heart as to what will happen next. How will we provide? But rather, in the same way that God positioned Paul, even through his financial adversity, to reach others, to touch others, and to proclaim the gospel to those who are also hurting, so God is positioning you. It's not a hindrance. It may be a Divinely designed platform. Some of you are moms of young children. You feel like your whole life is set on hold with these little ones. And then you come to church and and you hear the exhortation of the word and you, you wish that you could give yourself to so much more, but it just seems like it's dirty diapers and bottles uh, and, and Cheerios and goldfish. As far as you can see. And honestly, you look at your life today and just say, I have so little worth to God's great purposes. Oh, mom, if you could only see beyond these immediate diapers and crumbs and and recognize that the multiplied touches of your life upon the lives of those little ones is accumulating in a beautiful way and and they're not going to be in diapers and I was about to say snacking on goldfish but even our teenagers love goldfish to this day but there's some really great surprises coming down the road when they'll walk into your bedroom late at night probably and you'd rather be asleep but they say can we talk I've been thinking about what God might want me to do. And you know, I don't know that I'm called into missionary service or pastoral ministry, but I think I'm gifted in business and I want to pursue that. And then I want to serve God. And they start filling in blanks in ways that you just never imagined. Do you know that's directly tied to your faithful stewardship as a mom? Even through these moments where you're just, you're in survival mode. But you know, God puts you there. It's not actually a hindrance to the gospel work he's doing through you as you make disciples with those little ones when nobody else really sees or even seems to care. It's huge. There are modern day hindrances that we might perceive as Standing in the way of doing God's work. But when you submit your heart to Jesus Christ and just say, use me where I am, as I am, as you've gifted me to be. He is going to position you to share. And though you may not feel like you're particularly bold when you proclaim Christ, anytime you open your mouth for him, he blesses it. And it is bold. You may feel like there are hindrances that keep you from being less than what you desire to be. But from God's perspective, those are not hindrances. So we come to this point, and in one respect, we say, well, where's the rest of the story? 
And the truth is, God's writing it with you and with me. And that's what makes our presence in Trenton and in Salt Lake City so significant. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we rejoice that Jesus began to do and to teach great things in the days of his incarnation. And we rejoice that after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, he continued to do that work. And what a privilege it is for us this morning to be positioned where we are, as we are, that this great story of the work of Jesus Christ to save, to redeem people from every tribe and tongue and family and nation would come to a glorious conclusion. Oh, Lord God, keep us in the love of Christ and in the assurance and power of his gospel until that great day. And would you empower us afresh to live the gospel, to speak the gospel, that many more may be brought in. How we thank you for our time of worship today. And I ask, Lord God, that your blessing would rest upon Community Bible Church, that you would empower each member of this congregation to love you with all that they are and to love one another, that you would guard this congregation from the attacks of the adversary. He is a thief and a destroyer, and we ask that he might not devour one single soul from this assembly. As you guard and keep that you would shepherd this flock into green pastures and beside the still waters, that you would restore their souls on a daily basis. So, Lord God, do all your holy will in this place. It is all of grace. And because of what we have seen and known in the past, we are persuaded that there is more grace supplied for us on this day than we could possibly need. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you have done. Keep us in your great power, we pray. Amen.